you a healthcare professional who would like to hear from experts in the field of pain care? Or maybe you are caring for a family member who is experiencing pain or health challenges and you would like more information. Perhaps you are a healthcare educator who wants to better inform your students or staff. Then you are in the right place. This is Faces of Pain Care, the show where we interview experts in the field of pain care. And now, the co-creator of the Wong Baker Faces Pain Rating Scale and the executive director of the Wong Baker Faces Foundation, Connie Baker. Hello and welcome to Faces of Pain Care. I'm your host, Connie Baker. It is with great anticipation that I introduce you to today's guest, Dr. Frank Ferris. I had an opportunity to talk to Dr. Ferris a few weeks ago, and I learned so much about palliative care. I'm excited to continue the conversation and share him with you today. Dr. Ferris is the Executive Director of Palliative Medicine, Research, and Education at Ohio Health. He is particularly interested in strategies for integrating palliative care into existing healthcare systems worldwide. He has published and spoken widely on multiple palliative care subjects and effective approaches to education and program implementation. His accomplishments and honors are numerous. I'll put his bio on this episode page, but rather than me tell you, let's hear from Dr. Ferris himself. Thank you so much for taking some time to be with us today. Good morning, Connie, and it's a delight to be with you. Thank you for the opportunity. Yes, it's this great. Um, you know, let's just start by you giving me an overview about what you do and and um, and the work that you provide for people who are ill. Well, thank you for this opportunity. Uh, as you mentioned, I'm the executive director of uh, research and education for Ohio Health here in Columbus. I've been here for six and a half years and had the opportunity to not only build education programs, uh, so we now have about 160 physician trainees going through our education about hospice and palliative medicine, medical students, residents, and we have a fellowship training program as well as visitors. But I've been participating in the development of integrated consult services as well as our hospice along with Charles von Gunten in this setting. And we've grown from a very small team in 2013, uh, five physicians. We now have 26 full-time palliative medicine consultants. And we're seeing more across seven hospitals, we're seeing more than 6,000 new patients a year, as well as our hospice has tripled in size for its average daily census. And then my interest is international how can we help programs around the globe build their clinical skills as well as build effective programs? So part of my work has been developing curriculum materials. I, I think you know uh, I was a part of the original EPIC Education for Physicians in End-of-Life Care program through Northwestern and the American Medical Association. Epic Oncology, which was with our National Cancer Institute and uh, the American Society of Clinical Oncology. And now what we're doing is developing curricular materials called the Palliative Care Interdisciplinary Curriculum. It's effectively the next step in curriculum development, trying to make it interdisciplinary, trying to incorporate pediatric topics throughout. Uh, and beginning to translate that so it'll be available in more than seven languages. Uh, our goal is how can we make open access curricular materials? How can we use them to train 
physicians, other uh, providers, nurses, social workers, members of the healthcare team uh, domestically, both at Ohio Health across the US mm -hmm. and internationally. We, our goal is doing this all open access so people can access everything. Yeah, well, I think I, I viewed many of the videos myself, and I, I think that it's they're so accessible, and it's not just for healthcare professionals. I think for family members, too, who want to do a better job of caring for the people they love, it, it's a great way to get um, get more information so that we can be more effective carers. Well, and very much so, and uh, eventually we actually hope to do a series for family members and caregivers, but if they watch these videos, then they'll see what they should be advocating for with their physicians and members of their healthcare team. Right. And not everybody is going to have a, a multidiscipline or an interdisciplinary team available to them. But I think if they know the importance of a comprehensive care program, they can maybe create some of that for themselves. Oh, very much so. And you know, I always say that the family is the largest workforce in the healthcare system. They're doing the work seven days a week, threaded in 65 days a year. Uh, how do we empower them in the best possible fashion to not only make sure that the assessments <clears throat> are appropriate and every all the information is shared carefully with their healthcare team, uh, but they also advocate to make sure they're getting the right types of medications. Right, right. So tell me more about the integrative approach that you take in in palliative care? Well, you know, palliative care to me is about managing the experience. Is it about the pain? Is it about the nausea? Is it about the agitation? Uh, is it about the distress? Is it about effective communication? Those are all parts of effective palliative care. And when you think of the patient coming to the healthcare system for the first time, they come usually because they have a symptom. Again, is it pain? Is it shortness of breath, nausea, vomiting, weight loss, or a fever? Something brings them to the doctor, and then they learn they have a diagnosis. Oh, my goodness, up goes the anxiety and the distress. Mm -hmm. And they, they feel, oh, and they have all these things that need management. Well, shouldn't we start doing palliative care right there? Probably their family doctor or their specialist can do the basics, but if it's very complex, then a consult team should be available to them right from day one. They get their treatment. Hopefully everything settles. But maybe even as a survivor, uh, some of the folks who've gotten treatment have ongoing symptoms uh, and distress. They're worried. Is it all coming back? So are they going to need supports as survivors? We see a number of our folks uh, coming to palliative care clinics actually are disease-free, but they actually have a lot of issues. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, for the folks where their illness advances, um, maybe they have more issues, uh, either recurrence of their disease or ongoing sort of challenges with it. Well, let's be there to help. Uh, of course, there's the folks who are approaching the end of their lives. Very important that we be there for them. So much of it is about what we can offer in palliative care. And then there's the families in bereavement. Mm -hmm. Uh, can we be there with them and help them rebuild their lives? And it becomes a comprehensive package. Maybe it's the community physician who helps them with much of this. We want to share those skills so they become uh, empowered 
to do a lot of this and really be the concierge for the patient and the family. But of course, we want to build teams in all of our centers so that if the going gets complex, uh, there's people to reach out to for help when you're not quite sure what to do as a provider mm -hmm. in the team. And then, of course, in America, we have the luxury, and many people around the world do as well, of enhanced services of palliative care that we call hospice in the U.S. Other folks simply have enhanced palliative care programs. They're in many different countries now. Mm -hmm. You know, so many times people, if you bring up hospice, they think you're giving up on them or they're, or, um, you know, they think of it in a negative way. And I've never known anyone to say, to say um, I wish I'd waited longer to call hospice. You know, Absolutely. once they get involved in the hospice and see how comprehensive the care can be, they, everybody can take a breath and just relax and feel uh, support. And, and get skilled. Yeah, exactly. Get skilled because we teach people uh, the skills they need to provide the care and be there. We make sure they have the tools they need and we support mm -hmm. them. And what we've discovered is if people and if you think about this as simply enhanced palliative care, what we've discovered is if people get palliative care early, they live longer. If you think about it in very simple terms, we help people eat well, sleep well maintain their function and minimize their stress and they're going to do better both a better experience not so much stuff getting in the way and they can do the things they like to do in life but they actually live longer yeah and in some situations it's months even yeah. more than a year or more longer mm -hmm. and it's quality care i mean quality of life oh very much so yeah I mean, people are out and about and you know, even people who are on hospice care can actually take vacations. Right. And they, they travel because if they're feeling well, uh, what's on your bucket list? Let's do it. Yeah. Wonderful. So tell me about your team members. Who all's involved? Well, you know, palliative care should be about a full team. Obviously, there's a doctor and there's a nurse. Many of us have uh, mid-level providers like nurse practitioners or physician assistants as part of our team. Uh, so it's a mixed model. We have medical counselors uh, in some parts of the United States. It's advanced practice social workers with a master's degree. In other parts, it's uh, licensed counselors with life and family marriage therapy. Uh, but someone there to sit and talk to who really is skilled at counseling. We have spiritual counselors in Many people have advanced chaplaincy training uh, and are skilled at that. We have pharmacists uh, who help us sort out medications, make sure we're safe and avoid medication interactions and really minimize. So you don't have to take too many things, but you take the ones that you right. need. Uh, and, then, and then, of course, there's the healthcare aides who come to help in the home intermittently, um, who may teach people about bathing and toileting and feeding and are really part of that. And, and when it's important, we have the physiotherapists, the occupational therapists, and the speech pathologists who help us with sort of day-to-day -day functions or safety in the home, or how to prepare in a meal appropriately, mm -hmm. or how to have a conversation in a more effective way if people are challenged in their speech mm -hmm. capacity. So, so it's a really comprehensive team and, you know, core is the nurse, the medical counselor, the spiritual counselor, and the doctor. Uh, but we need all these other players as well. 
So, so this, so you all come together and, and maybe do a, a, a patient care plan. Is that what happens? Oh, very much so. And yeah. each member of the team sort of learns about the patient initially. And uh, then we each go out and do our own assessments. And then we come together and create a plan of care. And it's very much uh, a shared plan of care. I would think that there would also be a, in a component of caring for the team itself. Oh, it's very important because if you can imagine the family faces the challenges of all the distress, and of course that's shared with team members. And it's very important that the team who looks after many patients with uh, different types of illnesses, they often feel the emotions as well. And so it's important that we spend time looking after each other. Mm -hmm. I mean, my goal is create a happy family that works together as well as wants to be there in 20 years. Uh, to do that, you have to debrief and you have to think about uh, the challenges emotionally that each one of us face mm -hmm. uh, to make sure we're all safe. Yeah, it's critical to be able to sustain the care. Oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. That's great. What? Are, tell me about the your pain care goals uh, when you're working with patients. What What are your uh, hopes and approaches in, in relieving pain? Well, the first thing is to do an appropriate assessment of the patient and really understand the underlying cause. And I think one of the challenges is uh, many healthcare workers have received very little education in this area. And what we know is different causes need different types of treatment. So we need to understand the cause. I mean, if it's the back injury from a sports uh, event or motor vehicle accident, it may be very inflammatory, uh, has a lot of inflammation associated, and the non-steroidal anti-inflammatories are going to be the best medications as well as rest followed by really good physiotherapy. Uh, maybe sometimes acetaminophen or paracetamol is going to be a very effective medication. If it's uh, pain from diabetic peripheral neuropathy, uh, where they've got pain down on their feet and they're not quite sure where their feet are, it's a very different kind of stimulation involving different parts of the neurological system and maybe medications like Neurontin or gabapentin are going to be more effective in that area. If, if it happens to be spread of uh, tumor to bone, we know there's a lot of inflammation associated and it's a closed space. Uh, so we need to reduce the inflammation. As So we might use some non-steroidal anti-inflammatories or steroids, but we might also mm -hmm. need then some opioids. You know, many people in the training think it's all about opioids and it's not. Uh, so understand the cause, understand the person, and then choose the appropriate medications mm -hmm. together as a team. And of course, if we have to use that morphine, uh, lots of families, even some of the healthcare workers go, oh my gosh, I'm gonna give you morphine. Uh, and so there's lots of education. It's a fabulous medication for the right patients. No doubt, like every medication, there's a risk of some side effects. So we also need to monitor and we need to know how to appropriately prescribe it. But given that we understand the medication, how it works, and it's the right one for the patient, we actually get really great mm -hmm. results with almost everybody. 
the rate of side effects is much less than the rate of side effects for many of the other medicines we use uh, across healthcare. Well, and you know, pain takes so much energy. Oh my gosh, it's exhausting. It is exhausting. So when people um, do get that kind of relief, then quality of life increases again. That's what well, when you're in pain, you don't think about anything else. Anything else. So you can't function. It's exhausting. You can't think. I mean, it becomes your life. And I think the piece that people don't remember is, uh, and it may represent, this is an advancing illness, and oh my goodness, does this mean something terrible is going to happen? No, I think that's a big part of it. I really well, do. Well, and it's distress. So if I can relieve the pain, again, if I'm in pain, I'm not functioning, I'm not thinking, I'm not sleeping, I'm not eating, I'm not going to do very well. So if I get the right. pain managed, actually, I can think, I can sleep, I can eat. Oh, my goodness, I can function. I can go out to the movies. I can go to the theater. I can go shopping. I can go for a walk. Wow, mm -hmm. people actually do dramatically better. Yeah. And, you know, we often think of medicine as being the answer to pain, but there are a lot of other things that we can do to um, relieve pain. Oh, very much so. And, you know, one of the things we've really appreciated is sort of the physical modalities, uh, things like massage, things like um, physiotherapy uh, may be very helpful for people. Uh, we can also retrain ourselves in terms of maybe the modality of biofeedback, but also uh, sort of resetting our, our own minds uh, and begin to adapt to pain. Uh, and where you and I, Many of us grew up, we don't have any pain, but in fact, our neurological system is very active. When the pain is consistently sustained, do we relearn that that's the new normal? And in fact, there are many people uh, who've retrained uh, their brains. Uh, and although their stimulus is different than it was originally, they actually don't have pain and they're very functional. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think the um, <clears throat> the emotional component of illness and the emotional component of pain really is something that needs to be addressed. And that's part of the em empowering the patient, I think, and the family so that they don't have to be afraid that that pain in their knee is cancer. For instance, it's the pain is from you know, athletic events early in their life or, you know, it's just understanding the, the cause of the pain is so important. So, and that's what you say that you get to um, at the very oh, beginning. Very much so. And, <coughs> you know, education about the cause, education about what it means for the person. Mm -hmm. um, and the other reality is many of us, um, you know, we have a pain experience um, intermittently, and it's normal. So I've seen many healthcare workers who think you have to get rid of every single pain. So I have a patient in the bed, and I turn them, and I need to give them medication before I turn them. And yet the pain actually only lasts a couple of minutes, but the medication will hang around in the patient's body for uh, several hours and may actually cause side effects. This is not a good choice. So how do we learn to turn patients in the bed in a way that um, they don't experience pain? There are techniques to do that, or we put them on a type of bed where they don't 
need to be turned uh, right. in order to protect their skin. So right. it depends on where we are in the story. Yeah. Uh, for a particular patient, it needs to be totally customized. Right. And I think setting good expectations of what, how much pain will be relieved so that people, you know, don't think that they're going to be at a zero if, if that's not a realistic goal. Well, and it's also what was the patient's pain tolerance all through their lives. Uh, there are people who tolerate nothing and there are people who just put up with pain and they think this is absolutely just not even an issue. And they live with pain and they just get on with it. Mm -hmm. um, and there are many of them that would say, no, I don't want the medications. I, I'm quite comfortable where I am. Mm -hmm. Right. So what advice would you give people who are uh, listening to this and they want to create a program in their organization? And, um, you know, how would they go about that? So I think the first step is getting skilled in effective assessment, effective understanding of cause, different situations as we've described. So is it uh, a chronic uh, pain situation we're dealing with? Is it heart failure we're dealing with? Is it cancer we're dealing with? Uh, there's a whole variety of different pain stories uh, and advancing illness stories, we need to get competent. We need to get competent at managing the symptoms. We need to get competent at communication skills. We need to get competent at counseling so that we can begin to listen to patients effectively, understand their distress and help them with it. We need to invite team members to join us so that we develop an interdisciplinary team together and then we need to uh, integrate this within each of our healthcare systems. You know, what I like to say is, who's the customer? Well, the first customer of any palliative care service is not the patient and the family. The first customer is the doctor who wants help and the referring team who want help because they're not sure how to do it. So teams need to learn what I call consultation etiquette how to actually work effectively with the teams and the doctors who are asking right. for help. It's really important to build those relationships. And it's all about relationships. I mean, life's all about relationships, mm -hmm. isn't it? And then we need to recognize the patient and the family and the, you know, being competent with them in assessments, diagnosing, prognostication, managing, and supporting, walking with, and then we need to recognize the third customer, which is the people who pay the bills, the administrators and the finance folks. Uh, how can we build a program that helps them be successful at what they're trying to achieve, uh, their mission and their vision? Uh, there are very clear strategies to do all of this, very clear models. The Center to Advance Palliative Care in New York City, CAPC.org has spent a lot of energy on how to build effective programs. I would recommend people become, or institutions become members, uh, and they will get access to tremendous resources, conferences, consultants, who can really help them build an effective program. And then it's important to, for a program as they develop to begin to collect their data, uh, to demonstrate their effectiveness. Uh, administrators need to know it's helping. Right. And uh, it doesn't have to be complex data to start with, uh, but you've got to show 
as a program that we're doing something useful for the institution. Right. We want them to give us more because uh, certainly at Ohio Health, we started off with two little tiny consult services. Now we have seven full teams as well as a hospice that's tripled in size. Mm -hmm. um, and the institution recognizes the complete value from a financial perspective, let alone a quality perspective, mm -hmm. let alone the doctors are asking for more and more and more. Mm -hmm. uh, that's what you want. Yeah. And, and one, one of the things, one of the videos that I watched was an, an interview with a, a woman that um, was in the ER just over and over. And once she became a part of the service, she, she didn't have to go to the ER anymore because she had the support she needed in her home. Oh, you're talking about Martha and her uh, 21 admissions in 24 months. Yeah. And the reality is once she had the supports, she lived for another two years. She actually had problems with her breathing and problems with her heart. She lived for another two years and she never went back to the hospital once. Yeah. That's so she actually had a great life. And in the video, she says, I had to schlep my oxygen to go shopping. <laughs> well, she figured she figured it all out so that she could go shopping. That's fantastic. Shopper. That's fantastic. Aren't, those, aren't most women in the world lovely shoppers? Yeah, absolutely. That's, and they want to get out there. And you great. don't want to stop shopping. No. Oh. And she kept she kept getting her hair done and she got her nails done. Yeah. She loved it. Yeah. Yeah. That's all the stuff that makes people really sort of feel like I'm a whole person. That's right. And then and then when um you know, when the illness takes its course and people begin to think about end of life, um most people uh say that they want to be at home. They don't say, I want to be in the ICU attached to machines. And, but, the, but there's a fear on the side of the patient, maybe, or the family and not knowing how to care. So how, do, how does your team prepare for that? Oh, it's very real, isn't it? Because, you know, as I said, the family is the biggest uh, provider of care in the healthcare system. We do it for each of our loved ones and we do it willingly. Now, some people don't like to do the personal care, but they're happy to do the shopping and the cleaning and the cooking. So we get a team, uh, but they then all need information. <clears throat> they need skills and they need support. So the palliative care or the hospice team can reach out and really help them get skilled, get comfortable uh, and really understand what's going to happen. And there are steps along the path. We can educate people in those steps and we can be with them as much as they need supports. Mm -hmm. We also have the opportunity within the context of hospice, if someone's in a crisis, we can admit them back to one of our hospice units or hospitals under hospice care. So there's a, a full comprehensive system available, particularly mm -hmm. in the US, mm -hmm. but this is true in much of Western Europe, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, many countries mm -hmm. now are developing this um, as an approach and it gives people options. You know, it's about two thirds of families that would be happy to care for somebody at home, but a third of families go, oh, I don't know that I can do this. And, and in the last moment, they don't want to. Mm -hmm. So we need options. We have options and, and people can all feel safe. And what's amazing is it's not only about providing care in this manner, but it's then helping people. There's a number of tasks that people need to do 
and actually would like to do as they're approaching end of life. Are their finances in order? Are their legal issues in order? But more importantly, have they all reminisced? Have they all had a chance to give gifts to each other? Whether they're physical gifts, like I want to give my jewelry to my niece, or uh, I've got a special piece of art I want to share, or I would just like you to have this book because it was a favorite of mine. So there's gift giving, storytelling, uh, but the chance to actually even be there and facilitate saying, I love you. I hope you've loved me. I forgive you. I hope you forgive me. And finally, facilitating that hug, that kiss, mm -hmm. and saying goodbye. Because it's also about the survivors, isn't it? The family are going to live with all of these memories. And how can we facilitate a situation where the patient really feels comfortable, the family has participated in the gift giving and received gifts, and the family has a sense for the rest of their lives. This has been amazing as an experience. We didn't love the loss. And we never wanted to really say goodbye because we had these wonderful relationships, but it was amazing. And of course, the important thing for the family is they're all watching their own future. If it was good, and when it's their turn, they'll say, gosh, give me those services right, quickly, please. Right. And their families will have a good experience. Oh, that's beautifully said. I absolutely agree. Well, it's... It's part of creating the magic of healthcare. And to me, health is having the capacity to live life the way you want to. And as healthcare workers, it's not about just managing the disease. As healthcare workers, we need to help people live. It's all about life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think sometimes uh, making that transition from acute care and trying to find a cure to just focusing on quality of life and how, how can we do this? Uh, what's the best thing for this patient at this time, this person at this time? That there's, there's kind of a, a paradigm shift that has to happen with healthcare providers. Well, and we need to think about how do we integrate that paradigm shift from day one? Yeah. It's not only about disease management, but it's can we give these folks the best possible experience so in the face of a new, even a new diagnosis, they can have the best possible experience and get on with life the way they want to. So, you know, everybody said, oh, you kind of transition as you get towards the end of the illness experience. No, 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 no. Like if I'm, if I'm sick, gosh, I want my symptoms managed quickly and I want to get on with my business and my life. Right. So how do healthcare think about this early? Yeah, I love it. Great. Yeah, me too. I just well, and what's interesting for healthcare workers and for families, it's about huge rewards, and it's about huge gifts, and we get the gifts and we get the rewards because we do this. Because you you figure out how to manage the distress, and you see people living their lives. Mm -hmm. What better healthcare is there? Uh, well, I I hear your enthusiasm and I join you. I think it's fantastic, and I'm so grateful for the work that you're doing. And it's not just here, it's all over the world. You've, you've uh, put a lot of miles in the air since I talked to you last. And I'm, I'm really, really grateful, genuinely grateful for the work that you're doing because it's making a, a huge difference. Um, I, w I do want to tell people that they can 
find out about your, see your videos on Vimeo, V-I-M-E-O.com forward slash PCIC videos. And we'll put a link on the episode page. I just, I think you're doing incredible work and I think you're getting ready to do some more videos, right? You're, Yes, we're going to be refilming in a sort of documentary style. And then our vision is to take those uh, videos, put them in little bites so people can watch five or ten minutes at a time and translate them into at least seven languages. So people, whether they're in the Spanish world or the French world or Arabic or Chinese, uh, they can all watch them. And we begin to share the concepts and standards of practice with everybody. Yeah, and make make that type of care the standard of care. That's right. I, well, and I, keep it keep it basic and keep it simple like we've been describing, but make sure that people around the globe can access it. Perfect. Well, it's just like your scale and the, the faces scale that you've been so involved with. Uh, how do you create a simple approach so assessment, how do we create a simple approach to getting people skilled? That's my goal. And how do we influence people all around the globe? Fantastic. Thank you for this opportunity to share these ideas. Wonderful. Thank you for being a part of Faces of Pain Care. And thank you for what you're doing to extend care for people around the world. Listeners, we would love to hear from you. Please visit our website at wongbakerfaces.org or email me at Baker at wongbakerfaces.org. Thank you for joining us today, and thank you for making a positive difference in someone's life. This has been another great episode of Faces of Pain Care. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes so you don't miss any of the new episodes. And be sure you check our previous shows for more information that will keep you informed and inspired.